0: question. How well would you say people know you? And I mean really know you. Know the, the real you. See, do you let anyone into your world or, or do you kind of keep people at arm's length so that they don't get too close? See, we all have parts of us that we don't want others to see or to know about. It's just part of being human, right? I think we're all too aware of, of things in our lives, things in our past, things in our minds, things in our hearts, that we would be, frankly, incredibly embarrassed if anyone were to kind of peer in the window and see. So we kind of present the parts of us that we want people to see. And that doesn't mean that we're necessarily hypocrites, you know, that are just putting on a show. It, It just means that we want people to see the good in us and we try to hide the bad. And the reason that we try to hide is that we're afraid that if people knew that part of us, if they knew about those dark thoughts that we have sometimes, if they knew about those maybe shameful feelings we feel sometimes, or things that we sometimes do, that they would reject us, that they would turn their backs on us. And to a large degree, I think that we carry those fears over into our relationship with God. And it goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve ate from the fruit of that one tree that they weren't supposed to eat from and suddenly felt guilty and ashamed. And and not just of what they had done, but of who they were. They were ashamed of their nakedness. And so they hid in the bushes. And let's just be honest. And let's just admit that Adam and Eve weren't the only ones to hide behind their fig leaves. We all do it. There are ways that we still feel naked and ashamed. But what would it look like to come to God without any pretense at all? To just be unreservedly honest, and to be able to kind of bring that last 5% to God that we are afraid to talk about with him? that part that we struggle to admit even to ourselves sometimes? And what would it take for us to get there? I want you to listen to David's thoughts from the opening stanza of Psalm 139. David says, you have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit and when I rise. You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out and my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways." Before a word is on my tongue, you, Lord, know it completely. You hem me in behind and before, and you lay your hand upon me. Such knowledge is too wonderful for me, too lofty for me to attain. See, as, as, as he sits there in a the stillness with God, probably with harp or lyre in hand, kind of strumming some chords, the spirit of God comes on him. And as he contemplates God's boundless mind, and his limitless understanding, the thought that settles in for him is that with God, I'm fully known. He knows everything about me. Like no human being knows me like God does. He knows everything I do. He knows every thought that I have before it even takes shape in my mind. He knows every word I speak before I even say it. And that means I can't fool him. Like, I can't come up with a story to tell God that makes me look better than I really am, because he he knows the story that I'm going to tell myself before I even come up with it. He was there with me yesterday, observing everything that happened, and he's already ahead of me in tomorrow, fully aware of everything that will happen and everything that I will do. He knows my past, my present, and my future. In fact, He knew my whole life before I lived a day. Now, going on in verse seven, he says, Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, in other words, the far east. If I settle on the far side of the sea, which if you're an Israelite, that would be the west Even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me, and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you. The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. Now, it's a little hard to tell as you read this, is he glad or is he frustrated by the fact that God is with him no matter where he goes? Like, is he wishing that he could get away from God's constant surveillance? As in verse seven when he talks about where can I flee from your presence? Or is he finding comfort in the fact that no matter where life takes him or even death for that matter, it can't take him anywhere that God is not. As in verse 10 when he talks about how your hand will guide me, you hold me fast. It seems to be a combination of the two. And I think we all wish that we could hide certain things from God. And we all find comfort in knowing that he's with us. See, the fact is that God's constant presence is either a source of comfort or uneasiness, depending on what we're doing and how we're living our lives at the moment. Now, obviously, we know that people get away with all kinds of evil in our world, but nobody is getting away with anything with God. I mean, you can't bury your secrets deep enough for God not to know them. We can hide things from our parents, from our teachers, from our boss, from our friends, even from our spouse, but we can't hide anything from God. There is no darkness dark enough. David goes on in verse 13. He says, For you created my inmost being, You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful, I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together in the depths of the earth. This is all imagery for the womb. He says, your eyes saw my unformed body, All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of sand. When I awake, I am still with you." Now, all of the imagery in this stanza about God's intricate artistry and his personal attention to forming each of us specially and and uniquely, all of this implies how much we mean to him. See, with God, not only am I fully known, I'm fully loved. And that's really the astonishing thing. He knows the real me, even the parts that I don't want anyone else to see. And he still loves me. Now, see, when I was a teenager, I, I used to feel like God was always watching me to try to catch me doing something wrong. But later on, the the light kind of came on for me that the reason that God is always watching me is that he loves me so much that he can't take his eyes off me. And that is such a different feeling. And, And even in the womb, God already knows us. He already loves us. The unborn are not disposable to him. They are precious. They are his precious treasured masterpieces. And while we are hidden away out of sight from the outside world, except for the occasional sonogram, he is there with us in the dark of the womb, orchestrating the formation of our body and our soul. And he made us very intentionally, and he designed us perfectly for the purpose that he has for us. Now, I wonder, if you keep trying to chase a dream and the dream just keeps eluding you, it may be that you're trying to be someone you're not. Now, the American dream tells us, hey, you can be whatever you want. You can do whatever you want. Well, you can do whatever you set your mind to. And that's great to the extent that it drives us to fulfill our potential. It drives us to to, to chase dreams and to believe in ourselves. But it can also be misleading and frustrating when we find ourselves hitting a brick wall over and over and over again as we try to do something or be something that God didn't intend for us to be. It's more accurate to say you can do anything and be anything that God purposed you to be. Now, of course, as you read this stanza of the Psalm, these statements about God's loving care in designing us in utero, bring up the question of birth defects and miscarriages. I mean, if God is the one who's weaving each baby together to his perfect unique design in the womb, then why do some babies come out deformed or with serious health issues and why do some die prematurely? I mean, did God have a bad day? Is he prone to making mistakes? Did he just not love one baby as much as another? See, these questions, they're hard, and they aren't just intellectual questions. They they tear at our hearts. And for some of us, they're very personal questions. And ultimately, We can't know why these things happen to one child and not another. And we can confidently say that no, God didn't make a mistake. Like, no, of course God wasn't having a bad day. No, of course it wasn't a lack of love. Remember, I mean, this is the God who put himself on a cross to save us and to bring us home to him. I mean, human love next to his love is like shining a flashlight into the sun. So what did happen? Why did this happen? And that's where we just have to acknowledge the limits of our understanding. As David concedes here in the psalm, God's God's infinite knowledge is too wonderful. It's too lofty for him to attain, he says. He he talks about the vastness of God's thoughts and, and how just his understanding leaves him in awe. And how trying to understand all of God's thoughts and all of God's intentions and all of the reasons why God does what he does or allows things to happen that he does, it's like trying to examine every individual grain of sand on all the beaches of the world. It just can't be done. We can't possibly know why one child dies and another lives, or why one baby appears to be perfect while another requires emergency surgery, you know, or is born with some kind of life-altering disability. But we can know that God foresees and that God has a loving purpose and a plan for every single human life, and that his heart for us is always good. And don't miss the last line of this particular stanza, verse 18, where he says, when I awake, I am still with you. Now, some commentators think maybe he's referring to falling asleep from exhaustion, from trying to comprehend all of God's thoughts. But there's another interpretation that I like better. See, this stanza begins by talking about how God is involved in our lives from the very beginning, from the moment of conception, in our time developing in the womb. And then it ends by jumping to the opposite end of life, to the moment of our death. And he says, when I awake, that is from the sleep of death, I'll discover that even then, I'm still with you. And see, that's true whether a person lives to be 90 years old or doesn't make it nine months in the womb. Unless we've rejected God, unless we've rejected his gift of grace, whether our lives are long or short or or don't even have a chance to really get started, God will still be there with us when we open our eyes in heaven, smiling down at us to welcome us into his arms. Now, in verse 19, the psalm takes a sharp turn in its tone. So listen as I read this part. It says, if only you, God, would slay the wicked away from me, you who are bloodthirsty. They speak of you with evil intent. Your adversaries misuse your name. Do I not hate those who hate you, Lord, and abhor those who are in rebellion against you? I have nothing but hatred for them. I count them my enemies. Now, at first, as you read that, it feels like this section is out of place, doesn't it? I mean, he's been talking about how we're fully known, how we're fully loved by God. So what's this about? Well, love is supposed to flow both ways. And if I'm loved with such undying devotion by the God who created me, I need to love him with the same loyalty. But should we want to see God slay the wicked, as David says? I mean, should we hate people who hate God? You know, this is kind of where the psalm gets a little enigmatic for me. Didn't Jesus teach us to love our enemies, to pray for those who persecute us? Of course, the answer is yes. So what's this about? Well, here's the important thing to notice. David isn't talking about people he just doesn't like, okay? I mean, he's not talking about people who who just have done him some personal wrong. He's talking about God's enemies, and that's important to note. He's talking about people who have set themselves against God, and there are more than a few of them around. I mean, he mentions people who who try to paint God or any belief in God in, in a bad light, it talks about people who speak badly of God, people who misuse his name, use it as a curse word. It talks about people who are bloodthirsty. In other words, people who have no regard and no respect for human life. And the enemies of God in this world are many, and they're vocal, as they were in David's day. And like him, we have to make a decision about whose side we're on. And knowing that God knows him better than anyone, knowing that God gave him life and that God has shown him such constant care and and attention since the moments of his conception, like David wants to be unequivocally loyal to God. He realizes that he's in the middle of an epic conflict between good and evil. And he has set his mind that any enemy of God is an enemy of his. He is not going to fraternize with the enemy. He's really essentially saying the same thing that James wrote in James chapter four and verse four when James said, you adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world means enmity against God? Therefore, anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. See, Friends of God aren't friends with his enemies. And that has some big implications for us, doesn't it? Who are you standing with? Who are your people? Who do you applaud? Because if someone is influencing you away from God, you need to put distance between that person and yourself. If there's a voice in your life that is tearing down God and tearing down your faith, you need to make it clear to that person where you stand. Because your relationship with God is the single most important relationship in your life. And either he is at the top spot or he's in the wrong spot. But I think even as we think about that, there there are some serious dangers that we have to avoid with that. And David's aware of that as well, and and he wants to be sure that it really is his loyalty to God that's driving those feelings in him and not some kind of misplaced sense of false pride or maybe self-righteousness. And so he goes on to say in the last lines of the Psalm, "'Search me, God, and know my heart. "'Test me and know my anxious thoughts. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. And so he comes full circle here to where he began the psalm with God's perfect and intimate knowledge of him and understanding that he's fully known and yet fully loved. And, And this is just so freeing. He can be completely open and vulnerable before God. Like he's got nothing to hide. And even if he did, he knows he can't hide it, right? So instead, he invites God to come on in through the door of his heart and have a look around. And and he throws open all of the doors to all of the rooms inside, even the closets. And he says, come on in. Come on in, God, search my heart. I'm giving you full access. You know my heart better than I do. And I want you to bring to my attention anything in here that isn't as it should be. Did you notice he's got three requests of God here? Search me, test me, and lead me. Search me, test me, and lead me. I wonder, have you ever been this open with God? Do you pray? And when you pray, do you ever get beyond your request for blessings and ask God to search your heart? Do you ever ask God to convict you of anything in you that he finds offensive or out of place in your life? Do you ask God to lead you to walk in his ways? I mean, that feels risky, doesn't it? I mean, right away, maybe you feel the urge to run for your fig leaves, you know, to run for, run for the bushes. But remember, Remember that regardless of the mess that God is going to find when he looks in your heart, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to hide. Because remember, with God, I'm fully known and I'm fully loved, so I can be fully vulnerable, right? You're not going to lose his love by asking him to search your heart but you sure do have a lot to gain by asking for his help, to know yourself more clearly and and more accurately. You know, gaining insight into your own heart and into the motives that you have that are driving you, the feelings that you're harboring there in your heart, that is powerful knowledge that can help you to make positive changes and to get unstuck. See, our, our hearts are such deep waters, and few people really know the depths of their own hearts, much less the hearts of others. But having regular heart checks where you just get quiet with God and you open up access to him and you invite him in to search your motives and your attitudes and your deepest desires and your fears, that can be nothing but helpful and healing. He can show you those places where you need to let go of something and forgive. Or maybe places that you need to, to let his truth expose lies that you've been believing. Or you need to, to let the light of his goodness kind of flood in and just chase out the darkness that you've let settle in. Or maybe you need to, to reexamine your true motives in what you're doing and, and perhaps to repent and to confess that to him. See, we get stuck in the same patterns and the same choices that just keep causing us the same problems over and over and over. And at some point, we just kind of become resigned to the, to the idea that, you now this is just the way I am. This is just how my life is going to be. But remember, knowledge is power, okay? Knowledge is power, and knowing your own heart, man, that is the power to change your life, especially when you not only become more self-aware, but you turn to God to help you make those changes. Wow, you know, there is a reason that scholars have called Psalm 139 the queen of the Psalms. David has opened up the window and he has given us a very personal look into his own relationship with God. And this psalm was sung by the people of Israel and it's here in scripture for us as an invitation to come to a place of complete security and transparency and humility before God. If there is anyone that we can come to, that we can come to and that we can be completely real and we can be authentically ourselves with, it's Him. So here's my challenge to you. The next step is invite God in to search your heart. Drop your fig leaf and just come to Him as you are, knowing that you're fully loved as well as fully known and use the last two verses of of this Psalm and and pray them out loud as your prayer to open up your own heart and to become fully vulnerable with God. But be ready because there's some work that he's going to want to do. I can promise you that. There's a lot that he wants to clean up there. And, And it won't always be comfortable, won't always be easy, but the results will be a beautiful thing.